Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes social worker and adoption advocate Katie Perkins to the show for part one of their conversation on what it means to be adoption competent. Part two will be released on November 23rd. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here again from Chaddock. And actually, the day that I am recording this podcast, which is November 1st, is the four-year birthday of the podcast. So we have been at this for four years, and thank you for being on that journey with us and for your listenership. So today's guest, I'm so excited to introduce Katie Perkins. And Katie is going to be speaking to us about what is adoption competency. So let me tell you a little bit about Katie. She is an LCSWS, so that's licensed clinical social worker and supervisor in Texas. She's in private practice. She provides therapy, professional training, case consultation, and policy analysis in Colorado, Florida, Illinois, Texas, and North Carolina. Katie specializes in family separation, sexual and domestic violence, cultural competence, and childhood trauma. She is also a founding board member of STAR, which stands for Support Texas Adoptee Rights, and a member of the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, the Texas Council for Family Violence, the National Association of Social Workers, and Adoption Knowledge Affiliates. Her experience also includes community, state, and national advocacy as a leader and a volunteer. And Katie has been united with her first family for more than 20 years. So she is coming at this conversation, both with lived experience as an adopted person, with clinical experience, and also with an interest in policy, which you often don't find clinicians who are also interested in policy. I think um, that's a wonderful combination to have in one person. So stay tuned and you will be able to hear from Katie and what she has to say in just a minute. So, hey, Katie, thank you for joining us on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Good. Well, you know, I was thinking when I did your introduction before you hopped on that you don't often find somebody that has such a passion for both clinical work and policy. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> but, and I think it's, you know, it just 
it, there's lots of other things that make you unique, uh, which we'll get into in part of why we were so thrilled that you agreed to talk with us today. But, you know, I, I think it's good because I, I think there's sometimes a division there in that mm-hmm. bureaucracies are not really getting what's going on in the trenches. And sometimes then policy does not match what's needed. So I know that's not what we're here to talk about today, but <laughs> I think that's a... It, it relates because, yeah. um, you know, some of what we're going to talk about today does relate to policy development. Mm-hmm. So you must just have some really unique brain that, you know, moves in all these different directions <laughs> to like both of those things. Well, I started, uh, that was actually the focus of my my social work master's was more of a community and administrative practice track. So that was really my first calling to social work. And I did those types of things and jobs for a while. Um, Lots of professional training and community outreach, especially around sexual violence. Um, But over that time, I became more and more involved in clinical work and going to the same trainings as the clinicians were going to that I was working with and eventually decided, well, I'd kind of like to give that a try. So I moved forward in that direction. And so I bring that original orientation of more of a systems view and the policy perspective and the community perspective to the therapy room. And I think it really does change things. Yes. And I think, you know, particularly with the topic that we're going to be discussing today what is being adoption competent that there are definitely policy factors that have been so huge Mm -hmm. in adoption um, that have to be thought about and considered I think even in clinical work Um, so I think that that's really a good additional piece that you have yeah, and, and it's true because a lot of what we're working on clinically is influenced by what the policies are. And it's not uncommon for me to tell a client when they're stable and they're open and ready for it, you might consider bringing this issue to your local legislator. You might consider letting them know how this policy has affected you now that you're an adult, um, things that happened to you when you were a kid, because otherwise they don't always hear about it. They, they hear from professionals, not usually as much as they would like, but they also don't always hear from people who've experienced it firsthand. Yes. And just, you know, if some of our listeners are are not as familiar with some policy issues with adoption, just one quick example that we could share with them is sealed records. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, for the first time I went to the, oh, I don't know how many years ago it's been, maybe five years ago to the American Adoption Congress Mm-hmm. conference and honestly, I'm really embarrassed to say I, I I guess I didn't even really realize when I was going that the impetus that started that group was around you know policy issues related yeah. to adoption and hearing people say you know I'm, I'm sitting across from somebody that's like holding my records mm-hmm. and will not let me see them Mm -hmm. and how upsetting and disempowering that is infantilizing it was just again uh, something i just had not had a full appreciation or, or awareness for 
Yeah. And you could do a whole hour just on why we need to restore access to original birth certificates for adult adoptees. Right. Um, Some states have it. Some states don't. And long story short, that uh, that can become a clinical issue. You know, people will come into the office and say they want to find their information and having to talk through with them what they have a right to, which isn't always what they think they have a right to. Um, it can hit hard. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> training session. But um, getting your records, when whatever you're able to get and when you're able to get it can be really healing for people. For many people, it's the first time they've seen their first parents handwriting or information about them they didn't know about before. Uh, it can be really healing. So to put this in the context of um, what is adoption competent, we could already say one thing is recognizing the significance of not having access to parts of your legal history and and things like that. The the pieces that are there. I mean, it's one thing if this information is just not available, but to know there's a gatekeeper who can have it when you can and it's your life. Yeah, I I would say every, for for most people I encounter, every piece of information is sacred, no matter how small. Mm -hmm. So for another individual, whether it's an agency representative or a caseworker or whoever, to say, we can only release this and this, or we deem what is worthy of you knowing and not knowing, Mm -hmm. um, it's quite paternalistic. And it can be deeply upsetting to people. You know, it's my information. How come you have control over it? And again, bringing in that policy piece of, well, here's how we got here. Here's what we can do about it. Here's what you have Mm -hmm. access to. And here's what we can do moving forward. Um, Getting that information can be a very big deal for people. And, uh, you know, it could be any, in any circumstances, it could be a divorce that happened. It could be um, an adoption as a, a, an infant or a young child. And, I I think the bigger, the larger point is recognizing that people's information is important. Um, It it wouldn't be accurate to say, well, that's in the past. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. That's simply not accurate. And it's quite dismissive. And unfortunately, I know there's professionals out there saying those types of things. And we can certainly talk about other things that aren't helpful to say, because clients come to me and say, Commonly, I've seen two, three, four, heck, six therapists before you over however many years, and no one's ever asked me about fill in the blank, whether it's how I came into my family, um, what does being adopted or what does having experienced foster care mean to me? How much is that a part of my identity, if at all? Um, And they're just not being asked those questions. And there's certain almost magical questions that once you ask them, you've opened up an entire door to a lot of different areas that need exploration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what would you, if, if we're going to say important topics clinicians need to know about if they want to specialize in adoption, what are the additional things that come to mind for you? I, I would say there are some really significant intersectional issues that I find an extraordinary um, high occurrence and high rates of overlap of um, developmental trauma. So there may be abuse that they experienced as a child. There may be some kind, not as often in my practice, but definitely it does happen where there's maybe even exposure to drugs or alcohol in utero. 
um, self-harm. So I encounter a lot of people that are engaging in some type of self-injury, whether it's, <clears throat> excuse me, cutting or scratching or um, picking or pulling at their hair. Um, there's, there's a lot of different types of self-harm. Suicidal ideation. If I ask about it, I find it most of the time on, on somewhere on that spectrum of anywhere from um, I've thought about killing myself many times over the years to it just really wouldn't be that big of a deal if I didn't wake up in the morning. So it could be really anywhere on, on that spectrum. I often ask about the relationship with food. And I find a lot of restriction happening, um, a lot a lot to do with, not to go too in-depth, but it can be a, a manifestation of wanting to fit in to their family. If you don't look like your family or your body doesn't look like most of the people in your family's bodies, um, or if there's some traumatic dysfunction in the family and internalizing some of those identity issues rather than openly talking about them. Sometimes that can manifest through issues of food, uh, sexual trauma, gender identity, sexual orientation. And I would also have religious trauma depending on a lot of that is depending on the motivation of the parents who adopted. If they're coming from a, you know, a, a deep religious conviction, sometimes I find there's some stuff going on there with, I should be grateful, or I was rescued, um, or God called them to adopt me, and who am I to question that? Well, those may be facts for the adoptive parents, but it can hold a very different meaning for the adopted person. So mm -hmm. I find the people that are coming to me frequently have not been asked about these things. And these are all issues that people will often really deeply internalize. They mm -hmm. may have never, ever talked about it before. Mm -hmm. um, they may not feel safe telling their family members about it. And it's really all connected to this idea of turning inward, mm -hmm. where am I in an environment where I feel safe to be myself, to talk about my reality, which may be different than the reality my family is experiencing. And mm -hmm. how are they going to handle that? Mm -hmm. And they may be getting covert or overt messages from family members that these things are not safe to talk about. Um, and that's what ends up, once we start digging into it, that's what ends up coming out in therapy. So the reason I would say we need to know about these things to specialize is that there's a number of professionals who will say, well, I specialize in sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's very helpful. We need more clinicians who, clinicians who specialize in sexual trauma, but to, they, there needs to be an understanding of how these issues overlap and how they work together. And again, at least for the people that come to me, I find they all, they're all coming up all together <laughs> in individuals. And I think they're coming up a lot for people and they're just not being asked about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe part of what you're saying is that there needs to be a broad assessment of these issues while still considering the context of adoption rather than piecemealing this. Yeah. And, and I think coming to your earlier point about how I think on that bigger systems level yes. is that that's my framework for myself. It's, it's easy for me to zoom out from what they're saying and look at it all collectively mm -hmm. and say, okay, so this thing that you're mentioning over here about not feeling comfortable about being honest with people. And there's a history of secret keeping in your family. How far back does that secret keeping go? And what parts of yourself are you concealing from people now? 
Mm-hmm. Because if they're secret keeping, there's more. <laughs> there's always more secret keeping I find on find out. There's more going on than we usually think there is. So how does that then filter out into the different domains of your life? Where is this idea of secrecy or withholding of the self playing out? And so if you take that concept of withholding of the self, um, sometimes I'll say we have, you know, shattered identities. We have multiple identities. We put them away, Put, put them away somewhere that's safe to keep them that we don't share with people. So if you're doing that, if you take that concept, you can imagine how that would play out in different ways. So that could be, like I said, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, religious inclinations, self-harm, which is a very secret typically shameful activity, people feel shame around it, substance use, food, restriction, not eating out of punishment for self because you're not fitting in. All of these issues are things that people frequently feel a lot of shame around. Mm-hmm. And so it's a similar um, function or a similar yeah, a similar function as I don't feel like I can be who I truly am because I need to fit into someone else's idea of who I am. Mm-hmm. So that that sensation of I need to fit into my family or I can't talk about who I am or I'm not allowed to ask about my first family or I'm not allowed to talk about them. It's the same effect. It's the same sensation. And if that's where you're dwelling in your mind, that state of being, Usually that's happening in a lot of other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things specifically that you mentioned earlier was that a therapist may have told a client who's seeing you, oh, well, that's in the past or these experiences that are really discounting the importance of this. And it sounds like with your specialty area, you're often working with adopted persons who've seen a string of other people, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that come out in other themes that come out as you work um, with these individuals where people are really missing the boat? Uh, is there anything else? I mean, you've, you've shared a lot of other things, but um, of important things already, but mm-hmm. is there anything else that He's like, oh, wow, not again. Really? That happened to this person too? Uh, I I just had, what were we talking about this morning? I met with my clinical intern this morning for supervision. And we were talking about how it's interesting how it seems like our clients will go through things simultaneously in a pattern. So like I'll have four conversations in the same week about uh, one common thing I hear is what's my purpose? And I'm getting the chills talking about it. I don't know what it is, uh, but among the adult adoptees that I work with and and the teens occasionally, what is my purpose? And it it all goes back to kind of a sense of rootlessness, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe aimlessness, not knowing where I come from makes it hard to know where I'm going. So Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of that question of Mm -hmm. what's my purpose. Um, we, we hear a lot of, I want to fix it. What do I do about this? Very action oriented, which sort of skips over the discomfort of the healing process, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which can be Mm -hmm. a long and non-linear experience as I know you're aware. Um, and I would say one of the big ones that people go, no one's ever asked me that is tell me about your relationship with food. 
mm-hmm. and they'll immediately open up about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, they've just been waiting to be asked, um, yeah. in terms of, you know, I feel of common one is, you know, everyone in my adoptive family is quite thin and my body isn't built like that, but I restrict because I want to be more like my family. Right. I hear that a lot, but those are just not things that, you know, like a teen is going to tell their parents. Right. <laughs> that's that's right. unthinkable. I mean, most adults don't want to tell anyone that. So, right. um, that's a big one that comes up commonly. Does that answer the Yeah. Question? Yes. 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 I mean, there's many, but those are just right. A right. Examples. Right. So, um, let's talk about again, under this umbrella of specializing in adoption, Attachment issues. I mean, we're on the attachment theory and action podcast um, and often intertwined in that is trauma. Mm-hmm. I feel that in the last, um, I don't know, probably since I met Melanie Chung Sherman. So it's been, you know, seven or more years now. I really felt that the way we're framing attachment and trauma in adoption is perhaps missing the mark. Mm-hmm. And that at, at times it's really um, overly pathologizing the adopted person. Might that be a way to say it? Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think I would add another dimension to that, which is it's almost exclusively focused on discussion of children. Yes. uh, Which perpetuates this idea of kind of perpetual, being a perpetual child. Right. And that's something that adopted and former fostery adults really struggle with. Um, You know, they'll find a clinician who says they specialize in adoption and they've, you know, seen two adults and 25 children. They don't really know about how those attachment issues or how the trauma they've experienced in their past affects them as adults. Um, so I've, I've tried to really, like you said, I've tried to switch my language a little to be adopted people or adopted persons. I think when, and there's certainly times adoptee is appropriate, but I think depending on my platform and my audience saying adoptee tends to send more, I think it makes people think about kids more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know anytime I post about it in social media groups, most of the response is from people who work with children. Mm-hmm. And actually my specialty isn't kids. I have a ton of experience as a former nanny <laughs> with kids, <laughs> but as a professional, they're just not my fave. You know, I prefer to work with adults. I do take teens occasionally, but mostly adults. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all, I feel like it's almost being treated as a diagnosis unto itself. Um, that, oh, if, if they are adopted, these are the issues we're dealing with. A lot of people think about RAD. We could do a whole session on <laughs> when that is or is not appropriate, uh, reactive attachment disorder. But yeah, I, I do feel like it's pathologized. And um, all too often, I feel like it's the um, adults against the kids. It's really a manifestation of adultism. I don't know how familiar you are with that, with that concept, but um, it's the adults against the kids. It's almost us against them. And mm-hmm. I really find more often the people that need more support and more coaching and therapy are parents of youth who are adopted or in former foster care. So in mm-hmm. fact, at my practice, we won't accept youth for services 
until or unless we can confirm that the parent or parents are receiving their own therapeutic support, whether that's through our practice or through another clinician who we do secure a release of information with so we can communicate with them. Um, Because in my experience, at least in my practice, I have found the work we do with the teen really isn't going to get very far until the parents are also getting similar support because it's not that kid's problem. Mm-hmm. It's a system issue. A family is a system and every system seeks equilibrium. And so when one person gets better or starts to get better, whether it's a seven-year-old or a 50-year-old, <laughs> um, everyone's going to try to seek out balance in that system. And they all need their own support to figure out how to do that. You know, it's so interesting just to bring in, um, a case example, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with families with more than one adopted child. And one's kind of the golden adopted child and the other one's the problem adopted child. And uh, as we work with the problem one um, at Chaddock and they begin to improve, all of a sudden the 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 wheels fall off with the other child it's it is because the family has been organized around one of the children has all these problems and and the whole system is organized around that so somebody else has to kind of take on that role i've seen it so many times i have i have as well and Um, but mostly, and yes, I've seen that with youth, but so since I mostly see adults, I see what that looks like when they become adults. Yes. So then they're coming in and not just working on their own stuff or on their own experiences. There's probably, I find more work to be done around the dynamics of the adoptive family, even more than the adoptive person's identity. Half Mm -hmm. the time, at least, Um, I would say most of our work is around the dynamics of the family they grew up with, because then as adults, they're coming in and saying, you know, but is it normal that I feel this way? Because my sibling, you know, they have never had this issue or they, you know, act very differently about it or they have different reactions. And there's a lot of psychoeducation to do around how everyone reacts differently to different types of traumas and experiences. And perhaps you turned more inward and your sibling turned more outward. Maybe they had Mm -hmm. more outward expressions Mm -hmm. of what they were struggling with. And perhaps you witnessed that and didn't like what you saw they experienced as a result of their behavior and you took it all inside. You Mm -hmm. shut it down and shoved Mm -hmm. it down deep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to feel that because you didn't want to be treated like that Mm -hmm. Um, or vice versa. So um, yeah, I I would, I think I completely agree. I've had a number of clients who they come in and they've turned inward while their siblings, like you said, were more outwardly focused with their energy and expressions and they maybe got more treatment. And the other sibling now an adult says, well, I just didn't want to cause any more trouble because my parents were already dealing with all these issues with my yes, brother or whatever. Right, right. Um, yeah. And it's certainly not to say that I think too, perhaps the way I said it, um, I want to clarify the one child is coping by trying to be the perfect one. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not that they maybe really internally, oh, it's all fine and none of this affected me. Um, yeah. It, it's that the role that they've taken on is, um, I can't be the, the problem roles already taken. So, you know, I need to cope with this in a different yeah. way. 
So that can come out in a different way, like overachieving. Yes. Um, perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's often some food issues there around uh, restriction or overworking out um, body image. Uh, it's a, it's a different like umbrella of stuff right, <laughs> that right. they're dealing with, but it can be to present a facade that everything's fine because like you said, I don't want to cause more of a ruckus than there already is. Well, and so I think that for going back to our theme of being adoption confident, it's one thing here is understanding this is an issue across the lifespan. Yes, absolutely. A lot of people, even as we started this podcast, are thinking, oh, she works with children. I bet they are. And like in their minds, they're like, oh, wait a minute. No, she doesn't work with children. (laughs) She she, she, Right. It doesn't go away. Right there shows our bias. Yeah. So, um, you know, adoption specialist, post-adopt specialization is not right after the adoption just it's it, it, because adoption is not a one-time transactional event. Yeah. You know, it's foster care. It affects people throughout the lifespan. And so if it's coming up in your, say your um, late thirties, when you, maybe you've recently had a baby, just as an example, mm-hmm. and you are really struggling with possibly postpartum depression and a terrible fear that someone's going to take away your baby. Mm-hmm. because you're thinking about what that experience might've been like for your, your birth mother or first parent, yes. maybe even for the first time ever. Yes. Um, that does not mean, so some clients will come in and they'll say, why is this coming up for me now? I don't understand. Why am I thinking about this so much? I never cared about this before mm-hmm. to be able to say that's perfectly normal. Yes. Okay. Not, I don't know. Let's focus on the postpartum depression or, well, you know, what was really wrong with your adoption or what does it matter how you came into your family? As long as your parents love you, those things say what you're feeling and experiencing is not valid and you need to not worry about it so much. Where do they teach us in therapy school to say things like that, (laughs) to, you know, move on or forget about it? Those are highly inappropriate things to say to people. So to to let this person know, yeah, that's totally normal. I know you're surprised by it, but um, yeah, it makes sense because you've never had to think about this before. And you're now experiencing a different phase of life. And so how it's going to come up with you now does not mean you've done anything wrong or you haven't healed yet or you haven't done enough work or, um, you know, there's a problem. It's just a normal experience for this later in life. So just like, let's make a totally different comparison. If you were born into your family and your mom died when you were like 10 and you feel like you had a relatively, you know, healthy and linear grieving process, you're doing pretty good. You get married at 25 you're a wreck, you're crying. I wish my mom was here. Would anyone dare tell this person that, you know, your mom's been gone for 15 years. What's the big deal? Um, You know, just get over it and get married. Like everything, nothing's changed. She's been gone for 15 years. Of course not. We, I shudder to think that any clinician would say something like that to a therapist or even a family member. I mean, I can't even imagine family members mostly saying that Mm -hmm. unless you're a real jerk, right? (laughs) People wouldn't say something like that. And so in that way, it's not different. You're just experiencing that grief or that 
life incident differently now that you're in a different phase of life. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, this has been such a fascinating discussion so far. Katie, I love the clarity of your voice about these things. Um, and uh, it, it really makes us stop and think, you know, it, it should be obvious. Um, but I, I think the point, which I, I want to get to um, in, in the next part of our interview, is but somehow we have this um, with someone who's adopted we're handling it differently basically that's what you're saying and i i that that we're not having the same sensitivities like we wouldn't say that to somebody who lost their mother so i'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation (laughs) and thank you so much for joining us this course this week and listeners stay tuned we have lots more to talk to katie perkins about And I hope you'll join us for part two of this interview. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.